Church, let me invite you to open the scriptures with me again this morning to Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 7, as we continue our, our study in Mark's gospel, waking up to Jesus as Mark is intent on conveying the uh, identity of Jesus of Nazareth and his true identity, who he is as the Son of God and Messiah, the Savior of the world. So let me encourage you to open and follow along in the scriptures as I read this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, let me encourage you to, to take a, two, uh, a pew Bible near you. And if you're using a pew Bible, uh, Mark chapter 7 is on page 818. But as you find your place in God's Word, let me encourage you to join me standing for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. The scriptures read this way. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the tradi- to human traditions. Verse 9, and Jesus continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say... That if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is... What comes out of a person that defiles them? After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart... That evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Father, we pray that you would guide us now uh, by the presence and power of your spirit to rightly understand the truths of your word, applying them to our lives as your people. Lead us now. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I must confess this morning that the opening of this passage, at least the first few verses of uh, Mark chapter 7, uh, have always puzzled me a bit. 
uh, why does Jesus and why do Jesus and his disciples not wash their hands uh, before eating? After all, don't we, we teach our children to wash our hands uh, before they eat? In fact, I had that battle with one of my own children this morning before breakfast. Uh, restaurant managers, right? You teach their employees to wash their hands before handling food. So why is it such a big deal? Why does Jesus make such a big deal of the Pharisees and the other religious leaders uh, approaching Jesus and his disciples, suggesting that they too wash their hands uh, before eating? And uh, the answer is this, uh, that the kind of washing described here uh, is a religious washing. It's a ceremonial washing. It's a ritualistic washing. Uh, You see, the word for wash Uh, recorded in verse 4 and following, is the word uh, that we use for baptism. It has religious connotations. Uh, And so this particular type of washing that was practiced by the Pharisees and other uh, religious leaders and uh, prescribed by them through their interpretation of the law uh, was meant to wash away worldly defilement, uh, to wash away corruption, Uh, symbolic of ritualistic uh, washing away uh, of impurities before God. And the truth is this, according to Jesus and the Scriptures, that outward religious efforts to cleanse fall short. Church, outward religious efforts to cleanse our impurities, our sin before God, always uh, fall short. You see, they they don't go far enough because... The problem of impurity is not simply uh, a problem that is on us. It it cannot simply be washed away. And to illustrate this uh, this point, let me me tell a a short story. So uh, a couple weeks ago, over spring break, I had the opportunity to take uh, my children fishing. Uh, And uh, the day before, it had rained cats and dogs. So it was uh, particularly muddy around the pond where we went Uh, fishing, but no big deal, right? Uh, Rubber boots are made for this type of stuff. Rubber boots are made for mud, uh, unless you fall down in the mud uh, time and time again, uh, which is exactly what my youngest uh, child, Paxton, did. Uh, And so uh, as someone who's walked in rubber boots before, uh, I didn't take myself back. Uh, I forgot what it was like to be a toddler boy Uh, surrounded by sticks and rocks and water and sticky mud in rubber boots that were slightly too large for his feet. And so he kept falling down, and I would pick him back up, and I would wipe the mud off him as best as I could, but it didn't matter because he kept falling back in the mud. See, the problem wasn't simply on him. The problem was in him. No matter how hard I tried to wipe away the mud, he was still a toddler boy surrounded by sticks and rocks and sticky mud with rubber boots that were slightly too large for his feet. And my efforts to cleanse mirror our religious efforts, our outward efforts to cleanse ourselves before God. They always fall short, but not enough. You see, religious efforts always fall short because religion is me-centered. Religion is me-centered. My efforts to cleanse. What do I need to do to be right with God? What practices do I need to adopt 
for the Lord to accept me? How much do I need to give to the church? How often do I need to read my Bible? No matter how well-intentioned we are, uh, religion always falls short because religion is me-centered. And the Scriptures, the Word of God, the Bible, is not me-centered. It's God-centered. The Scriptures are God-centered. He is their author. And He is the subject of the text. He is the one who reveals Himself to us through His Word. And to the religious rulers and leaders of His day who emphasized their own tradition and teaching above and beyond the Word of God, Jesus says in verse 9, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And so then He goes on and He gives an example of how the religious rulers in his day did just that. He mentions the the Corban, the rule that had been passed down by interpreters of the law, by the Jewish rabbis and other leaders, that they were able to set certain funds that should have been used to care for their elderly parents aside for the Lord. You see, Jesus often alludes to uh, or even quotes Old Testament text. But there's other times that Uh, He simply refers to uh, traditional teaching. And this is one of those instances. The Corban rule is not in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's not in the Old Testament. It was an interpretation and commentary on the Scriptures. The principle that's found in the Word of God is honor your father and mother. The elderly parents in that day certainly depended on children to care for them, to provide for them in their old age, but... Some of the religious rulers had interpreted this law and further commented on this particular rule and law from God, saying that there was an exception for those that want to dedicate those funds that could be and should be used to care for their parents to devote them to the Lord without any checkpoints or parameters as far as how those funds were used. And the result was through their teaching, through their tradition, they actually undercut the very principle of of God's word. And Jesus says this is hypocrisy. That any time that we elevate a tradition above the word of God, we have gone down the path of hypocrisy. That any time our uh, religious efforts, so to speak, do not reflect or are not accompanied by a heart that is devoted to the Lord, that we have gone down the path of hypocrisy and I have to ask myself, when do I act like the Pharisees? When do I emphasize my own tradition, teachings that have been passed down to me above and beyond the Word of God? For example, do I expect all Christians to to worship in the same style I do or to sing the same songs I do? Do I expect all Christians to dress in the same way I do? Has tradition become more important to me than the Word of God? Is tradition more important to me than God? According to the teachings of Jesus, if so, I must repent of hypocrisy. Repent of hypocrisy. Whenever our faith, our religious experience becomes more about us than it does God, then then we're called upon to repent of hypocrisy. David understood that the Lord wanted his heart 
Lord was especially interested in the condition of his heart, which led him to pray these words recorded in Psalm 51, verses 15 through 17. David said, open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Friends, does God have your heart? Has he captured your heart? God wants our hearts. But religious efforts and religious practices that fail to deal with our heart ignore the real issue because the real issue is our hearts. Jesus went on, it says in Mark chapter 7, verse 14, and he turned to the crowds. He turned away from just the religious rulers. He had something significant to say, to teach, and so he captured the crowd's attention, and then he proceeded to teach them that evil attitudes and thoughts and desires flow from corrupt hearts. Evil attitudes, evil desires, and evil thoughts flow from corrupt hearts. He said in verse 15, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Verse 20, he went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person, Jesus says. In other words, the problem between us and God is not some problem that's simply out there in the world. The problem is in me. It's a heart issue. It, it has to do with me. And church, this is why uh, sheltering uh, our children will not keep them from sin and sinning. Right? When we hear our children say something that they shouldn't say, our, our immediate response is, where'd you hear that? Who told you that? Who taught you about that? And, and we come upset. And sometimes rightly so. But let's not kid ourselves. No one has to teach our children, or us that matter, how to sin. It's in us. Our hearts are corrupt. Stained. Defiled. Broken from a pure and holy and right relationship with with God, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And I think deep down we all know that we, we fall short. I think we're aware that we don't measure up. There's something in us that desires to be accepted, that desires to be praised, that wants to be loved, that wants to be valued, that wants to be cherished. Uh, but I think we know that, that we fall short. Even though oftentimes we fail to admit it or fail to confess it. And I think God wants us to admit it. I think He wants us to own our sin. Own your sin. Own your sin. And by that I don't mean, I mean, don't champion your sin. Don't be proud of your sin by any means. But recognize it. Admit it. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. You spend much time around any one person, it won't be long before you are able to point out some flaws in that person, right? 
Uh, if you think anyone is perfect, then you haven't spent enough time around them. Paul recognized this. This is why he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, This is a trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel, right? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And I think to a certain extent, the gospel of grace ought to evoke that kind of response in each of us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You see, the cleanliness laws that that Jesus is teaching about here in Mark chapter 7 only uh, dealt with part of the issue. The rabbis and Pharisees and religious teachers expanded upon those laws. They sought to clarify them and to make them more specific and to apply them in places they weren't to be applied. But there were such cleanliness laws in the Old Testament given by God through Moses. They served a purpose, but not the full purpose. They taught us about the holiness of God. They taught us that to approach Him is a big deal. That He is other, that He is set apart from us, that He is perfect in every way, and to go into His presence is not to be taken lightly, but those same laws don't deal with the problem of our sinfulness. They don't give us new hearts. As I was studying this passage in Mark chapter 7, I followed one pastor in his study to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is an Old Testament uh, prophetic book. In fact, uh, let me encourage you to hold your place in Mark and, and turn with me to see this for yourselves. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you're in Mark, you can back up three books, Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah. And you're right there, Zechariah chapter 3. Uh, Zechariah the prophet um, receives this vision from God. Zechariah chapter 3, verse, verse 1. Zechariah says, Then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So Zechariah sees this vision of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the presence of the Lord, presumably in the Holy of Holies. And so in the temple system, there were three major parts. There was the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. And God's presence manifested itself in a special way, in a unique way, in an incredible way, in the Holy of Holies as He dwelt among His people and His people approached Him and recognized Him and worshipped Him and offered sacrifices to Him. But not just anyone could enter the Holy of Holies. In fact, no one could enter the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple, in the wrong way. Only the high priest of Israel could enter the Holy of Holies, and even then he could only do so once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And scholars have studied this and looked at the Old Testament laws leading up to this and looked at historical teachings. They say that the high priest began preparing for that day about a week in advance. And so a week beforehand, the high priest was put in seclusion, completely alone, separated from everyone else so that he wouldn't accidentally touch something unclean and become defiled. 
the night before, the high priest would stay awake and spend time reading scriptures and praying. And then on the day of, the priest would would come and would bathe from head to toe. And then put on unstained, clean, white linen garments. And then he would begin to go in and he would go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, and he would make a sacrifice for his own sins. And once he finished that task, he would go back out of the Holy of Holies and he would bathe again from head to toe. Put on new, clean garments. And he would go back into the Holy of Holies and he would make uh, sacrifice on behalf of the priests. And still yet, a third time, he would come out of the Holy of Holies and he would bathe again from head to toe. He would put on new, white, unstained linen garments and he would go in to make sacrifice of atonement on behalf of the people. And all the while, a crowd was gathered there at the temple watching, uh, cheering him on as their representative before God, ensuring that he, that he followed this procedure step by step for their own safety and well-being. And it's only with that background that what Zechariah sees next in this vision, recorded in Zechariah chapter 3, uh, it's only with that background that, that we get the full effect here that, that we become shocked to a certain extent as Zechariah was. Verse 3, he says, Now Joshua, the high priest, was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So here's the high priest in the presence of God Almighty, the eternal, holy transcendent God. And and he's he's not dressed in pure white linen garments. He is dressed in filthy clothes. And Zechariah must have thought, how could this happen? How could this be? Israel would have never allowed this to happen. Scholars believe that what's being conveyed here is, is that Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, as the Lord sees him. That even all the washing and the external ceremonies and the putting on of unstained, clean, white linen is still ultimately unsatisfactory. It's still not good enough to come before God because the Lord doesn't look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart and the Lord sees Joshua's heart and he sees that Joshua, like every other man, woman, boy or girl to walk this Earth is stained by sin, unfit to come into the presence of God. Yet before Zechariah can despair, verse 4, the angel speaks up. He says, take off his filthy clothes. Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Verse 8, listen. High priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch, into verse 9, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day, says the Lord God Almighty. Zechariah must be thinking, what, what do you mean? I mean, all this... Sacrifices are unnecessary. You're going to take our sin away or, or not good enough. We're still stained with sin. And I think the Lord then conveys to Zechariah that this is a prophecy. No, that there is coming a day when the sacrifices will be no longer needed, that the ritual ceremonial washing will be no longer needed. I will take 
the sin of my people away before me in a single day. Back in Mark's gospel, when Mark offers us some commentary on what he's writing, it must be significant because Mark doesn't do that very often, very fast-paced account. But in chapter 7, verse 19, Mark gives us this commentary. Jesus is teaching, saying that it's not what goes into the body that makes us unclean, it's what comes out. And Mark says in the end of verse 19, and saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Declared all foods clean. I think Mark is interpreting Jesus for us, saying that now the time has come. A new era has dawned. A new epic of salvation history is here in Jesus, in the Messiah. For in Jesus, God covers our sin, fulfilling the cleanliness laws. In Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God taking on human flesh. In Jesus, God covers our sin, fulfilling the cleanliness laws. You see, centuries after Joshua, the high priest, came another Joshua. Joshua, the Hebrew name, Jesus, the Greek name, same name. And just as the high priest, Joshua, began preparing himself about a week beforehand. Jesus began preparing himself about a week beforehand. The crowds cheered him on. They welcomed him on Palm Sunday. They wanted him to be their hero, but just a few days later on Good Friday, they abandoned him, they denied him, they rejected him, and they crucified him. As he hung on the cross that day, his father forsook him. Unlike the high priest of Israel, Jesus was not clothed in unstained, white, clean linens. No, the garments he had were taken from him. He was stripped, he was beaten, he was killed. He didn't receive a ceremonial washing. The only bath he received, in the words of one scholar, was to be bathed in human spit. Why? Why would God allow this? And Paul gives us the answer in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, God made him, Jesus, a sinless son of God, the only perfect human to ever walk on this earth, made him be sin, to take on our sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God wrapped Jesus in the stain of our sin and He exchanged the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us, for us, in return for our garbage, in return for our guilt, in return for our corrupt hearts. See, it's only the blood of Jesus that can restore us into right relationship with God. It's only the blood of Jesus that invites us, that welcomes us into the presence of a holy and eternal and a perfect God. It's only the blood of Jesus that can fix our hearts. So friends, stop working. Stop doing. Stop trying to cleanse yourself by your own efforts, for they are not good enough. And instead, stand in Jesus Christ. Stand in Christ. Stand in Christ as one of His, 
as a forgiven saint and child of God, as one who's been cleansed, washed, wiped clean, and clothed in his righteousness, as one who, through him, has been fit for God's presence. There's no other way into God's presence than through Jesus, but through the one who is the way and the truth and the life, we are welcomed, we are invited to come in and to approach God as our Father boldly, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he accepts us, knowing that he has washed us. You see, Jesus washes us and robes us in his righteousness. Church, Jesus washes us, makes us clean, removes the stain, removes the guilt, and robes us in in his righteousness so that we become part of the church, past, present, and future, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, so that we become part of the multitude of believers recorded in John's vision in Revelation chapter 19, where John writes, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. You see, church, a big day is coming. A great feast is coming. The feast of all feasts is coming. The celebration of all celebrations is is coming. For the groom is throwing a party, a festival, a celebration to celebrate a relationship with his bride that will never, ever, ever end. And you and I are invited to the table. And friends, not only are we invited to the table, but we are invited to be honored guests at the table For as the church, we are his bride. Are you robed and ready? Are you robed and ready? Has Jesus washed you? Has he cleansed you? Has he given you his righteousness? Are you washed in the blood of Christ? Are are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Friends, fine linen bright and clean for you, for me. Lord, we thank you for being a God who rescues us in your mercy. Lord, a God who loves us with an unfailing love, a God who is gracious and compassionate with us, a God who extends salvation to us through Jesus. Father, we thank you for inviting us into relationship with you, inviting us to know you and to live for you, inviting us to call you our Father. Lord, we long for the day, we look forward to the day of Jesus' return, that we might be gathered with people, every nation, tribe, people, and language, and surround your throne and worship you and enjoy your presence and provision, the joy of salvation forevermore. Father, we pray that as long as we are here, that you would continue to give us a taste of that joy. Remind us, as David prays in Psalm 51, to to experience the joy of your salvation. Father, guide us now as we respond to the truths of your word, as we sing your praises. Lead us that we might glorify you. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.